Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. This is the fifth message in our series about David. In this episode, Pastor Dwight studies the anatomy of sin using David's night with Bathsheba as a lens. For more information about us, check out our website at propchurch.net. That's provchurch.net. Let's get into it. King of the Hill. I don't know how many of you um, ever played that game called King of the Hill. But uh, actually on Mother's Day, it's funny, but I can't think of too many girls that play. They're, they're way more refined and intelligent than the boys who, you know, we, when I was a kid, uh, played baseball down for the Drew Moore Peewee team or midget team. And if we would win, we would go to uh, the Valley View Diner for ice cream afterwards to celebrate. And uh, in the back of, at that time, back in the 1970s, for whatever reason, Valley View had a big dirt pile in the back of their parking lot. So after we played game and had ice cream, then we'd run out in the team, we'd run out to the dirt pile, we'd take turns seeing who could be king of the hill. And basically you just, a kid gets on top and then the other guys just try to run up the hill and throw them off. You know, it's really a, a complex uh, game. And uh, machoism, you know, who can knock the guy, who can stay there the longest. That's the guy who wins. He's king of the hill, right? Um, when we get to 2 Samuel 11 this morning, uh, David is clearly king of the hill. He has been on the throne for about 20 years at this point, And he is presiding over what is called the golden age of Israel. All his enemies are subdued. In fact, if you read chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, uh, it says that David defeated the Philistines, he defeated the Moabites, he defeated the Arameans. And in fact, the phrasing used a couple times, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. He was a warrior, and he won a lot. The treasury is full in these years. All those vanquished nations are now bringing tribute uh, to Israel. There is peace in the land. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 15, uh, the Bible says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. He was a righteous leader. He governed well. He ruled well on behalf of his people. In chapter 9, the Bible tells us that he shows kindness to Mephibosheth, who is, uh, again, part of Jonathan's line, a son of Jonathan. Jonathan and David had that close friendship we talked about a few weeks ago. And, and so there was a, once the, the kingdom was settled and David was on the throne, he looked around and said, is there anybody left in Saul's house, in Jonathan's house, that I can honor? And for my love for Jonathan and Mephibosheth, the, the crippled man came and sat at the king's table. And it was God's grace for David to provide for him. In chapter 10, uh, David wants to show kindness to someone else, the king of the Ammonites, a man named Hanun, because his father had shown kindness to David, and David remembered that. And so he sent a delegation to Hanun, and the delegation was mistreated. They were accused of being spies. They shaved off half of their beards. They uh, sent away, uh, shaved away half of their clothing, ripped off half their clothing, and humiliated them publicly and sent them back to David. And then war breaks out, and David and Joab and the army of Israel smash the Ammonites, totally defeat them. 
So now when we start in at chapter 11, David has reached the pinnacle of success. He seemingly is able to control everyone and everything in his world, except as we are about to find out himself. He's in control of a lot of things, but his own heart. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter this morning. As we work through this, Alistair Begg uh, asked the question. It's a really important question. He said, is it possible to arrest a life of usefulness in an evening? All that David had done, all that David had accomplished, all the victories, all the great things, all the, and, and, and in one late afternoon evening, does, is it possible to arrest all of that? Second Samuel chapter 11, pretty good beginning in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness already. And then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. At this point in his life, it is believed that David is about 50 years old. He took the throne at age 30 and was ruled for 40 years. So he's right, roughly in the midpoint of his reign, roughly around 50 or so. And as we had mentioned, he had enjoyed a lot of success to this point. And that's exactly when you and I need to watch. There is a tendency for us to let our guards down when we have come through a season of victory. When you have a season of victory in your life and things are going well and you feel like you're on top of the hill, that you are in some ways, what could go wrong? What could possibly happen? How could this end badly? In fact, it's interesting, Skip Heitzig uh, offered this insight. He said, it is estimated that of all the people who fell, morally fall, in the Bible, two-thirds of them fall in the final one-third of their lives, toward the end. The majority of people who fell in the Scriptures fell toward the end, the last part of their lives. Not as often early in their lives. Early in their lives, they had something to go after. They had a goal, a purpose, a cadence, a rhythm. But then as time goes by and victories pile up and things happen, we can kind of settle and our hearts get wayward. Much has been made about the first verse. Springtime was a fighting season. Most kings and most armies went through, they waded through the winter 
because there was the early rains and the latter rains. And the early rains were the beginning of winter, and the latter rains were the, toward the end of winter, the beginning of spring, the latter rains. After it all dried up, the armies would go out. They didn't want to get their chariots stuck in the mud. And so they wait till the conditions were right for fighting. What's Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for war. Well, these guys knew the rhythm of war. So Joab and the army are out fighting a military battle. While David, David stays home and is fighting a different battle. He's fighting a battle for his heart. He's fighting a moral battle. And it is heavy. And there are those who say, well, David should have been out in the field with his men. And he, he maybe should have been. Kings often went out. Kings didn't have to go out. They were the kings. They could send their generals and their leaders and send their men out. They could stay back if they chose. And so this wasn't, he, he often went out with his men to fight. We know that. But in this occasion, he had decided to stay back. Part of the battle is that David is not satisfied with what he already has. That's a really important truth for all of us. And it's been growing in his heart for some time. In fact, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, it says after, after David left Hebron, he's, his first seven years of his reign were in Hebron. And then he moved to Jerusalem, the latter part of his reign, for the majority of his reign in Jerusalem. But he was started in Hebron. It says in verse 13, chapter 5, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and more wives in Jerusalem. And more sons and daughters were born to him. And so he was already moving against God's original command to the children of Israel about having a king who did not take multiple wives. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, when the Lord says, there'll be a day when you want a king. There'll be a day when you say, send a, give us a king, okay? And God knew that. And so he was preparing his people. He said, when you ask for a king, there's some certain things you need to be reminded of. And one of those was that he should not take many wives. He should not have multiple wives, for his heart will stray. And so the, the warning came in Deuteronomy, and now David's living it out. And the, this adulterous encounter that happens between him and Bathsheba, it is something that, hap that, that happened one night, but it was building in David's heart over a number of years. He didn't get caught off guard that evening when he spotted Bathsheba on her rooftop. You know, Pastor Chuck and I were talking earlier this week, and he knew a guy who, who had said one time, you know, I was walking into the store, minding my own business, and then that magazine was there. This was in the old days when there was magazines in the stores that you had to... So you, at that point, you got to make a choice. You're minding your own business, but got to make a choice. There's that thing there, and I know if I go there, I'm where this could head, right? David had a, the vantage point to see. He was the king of the hill. And as the king, he built his palace on top of the terraced hills of the city, Jerusalem. They actually was built down this way towards a valley. And so David was on top. And so his rooftop commanded the 
whole city and he could look down the city. He could see people out on their rooftops. And in that part of the world, it was a livable space. The rooftops, the rooftop gardens, beautiful nights. The spring was a beautiful time of year. And so there was Bathsheba out. But there's a difference between a first glance and a gaze. The first glance, you can hardly avoid. I'm minding my own business. Oh, I'm on my rooftop. There's, okay. And so there's something about us understanding the, the plan of God. He has made, he has made a woman. He made, he made male and female, and he made the female to be beautiful to behold. And so it is a declaration. There's a beautiful woman. And that would have been, let me turn and go back into my chamber now. But there's a difference between the first glance and the gazing. In fact, Chuck talked about this a couple weeks ago in our, our men's breakfast about the circadian clock that men have, that they know when it's, t- it's time, it's, it's past time, it's beyond time. Turn your eyes. Men, we, you know that. It's built into, it's hardwired into. The Bible says this woman was very beautiful. And David took her in. Here's the thing. The Lord actually alerted David. I don't know if you caught that detail. Is it in the third verse there? When he sends someone to go find out about her, about this beautiful woman, who is she? And the report comes back. She's somebody's daughter, Eliam, and she's somebody's wife, Uriah. And right there, it should have been game over. All right? If David's thinking clearly, it should have been, okay, enough. Somebody's daughter, somebody's wife. But, and David knew the law of God. But when lust, which is wanting something you don't have, whether it's a person or a position or power or money or an object or a certain kind of life. You can lust after a lot of things. It's not just someone. There's a lot of some things you can lust after. But when lust takes over, your conscience begins to fade. Bonhoeffer quoted this. He said, when lust takes control at that moment, God is quite unreal to us. In other words, when you are in the grip of lust, God seems to evaporate. The longer David gazed at her, the more unreal God became. And that's what happened with him. That's what lust does. It does, it's done it millions of times. Lust makes God vanish. Did you notice there how matter-of-fact the writer is about this encounter that's recorded in verses 4 and 5? It's very straightforward. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. We've got an issue. Hmm. Mary Evans said this is a description not of a great love story, but of a seedy one-night stand. 
Bathsheba may or may not have been a willing participant in this. The text really doesn't deal with what's going on in Bathsheba's heart. There is no way of telling whether she was flattered by David's attention or she felt coerced and unable to refuse the king's command. The king has sent for me. I have to go. He is the most powerful person in Israel, and he has summoned me, therefore I have to go. And so there was that, that, that power structure that was at play, and there are many who speculate, was she raped? I don't know that, possibly, but she was taken. He, he, he sent for her and took her. The writer makes no judgment about Bathsheba's guilt, but there is no doubt at all about David's. David behaved as if his own desires were the only thing that mattered. He wanted Bathsheba, so he took her. His obligations to God, his obligations to other people, his obligations to God's law were set aside. And while all that transpires in the first five verses is bad enough, it actually gets worse beginning in verse 6, if we keep reading in verse 6. So David now, after hearing she's pregnant, sent this word to Joab, his general in the field, send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, some small talk. How, how's, the, how's the things going out on the front? How, how, the, how are the soldiers doing? How are your brothers in arms doing? And he has this conversation and then verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which is uh, a, an old acronym for go down and see your wife. Spend some time with your wife tonight. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. So David even sends down a little extra to sweeten the pot, to make their time even more special. So Uriah left the palace, and the gift was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And when David was told Uriah did not go, down, did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He had more honor than the king. He was a Hittite. He wasn't even a born Israelite. He had been part of the conquered peoples, and he had converted and understood this holiness of God. And so somehow he became a follower of Yahweh through this process. And now he's so devoted to Yahweh, he won't break the code. I'm not going home to be with my wife while I'm supposed to be out on the battlefield. Uriah said to David, Excuse me, he gave that thing. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home again. Even though he's had too much to drink and is a little tipsy and beyond his senses, he still knows enough, I'm not going to that house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab 
and sent it with Uriah. Talk about treachery. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. He's, writ he's written the death warrant for Uriah, one of his great soldiers, and he sends it by his own hand, knowing he's such an honorable man, he will not break the seal of the king. He will deliver it to its intended person in Joab. Mm. So verse 16, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Mm. Mm. John Bloom writes about this. I, I ran across that this week. He is thinking about David a year later. What was it like a year later as David is thinking about what happened that night in that season with Uriah and the murder and the adultery? And he says, it was spring again. David had once had loved warm, fragrant spring afternoons on the palace roof, but this year the scent of almond blossoms smelled like deep regret. David had no desire to look toward Uriah's empty house. If only he had not looked that way a year ago. The memory throbbed with pain. His conscience had warned him to stop watching Bathsheba, but in his desire-induced inertia, it had felt like he couldn't pull himself away. What pathetic self-deception couldn't pull himself away. He would never have tolerated such a weak excuse in another man. If Nathan had unexpectedly shown up while he was leering, would he have pulled himself away? Oh, yes, he would have. He wouldn't have risked his precious reputation. But there on the roof alone, he had lingered. And in those minutes, sinful indulgence metastasized into a wicked, ultimately lethal plan. David wept. His sovereign, lustful selfishness had stripped a married woman of her honor, murdered her loyal, valiant husband, and killed his own innocent baby boy. Bathsheba was now left with a desolate, hollow sadness. And he shuddered at the Lord's dark promise. The sword will never depart from your house, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. The destruction had not run its full course. How had he come to this? David thought back to those harrowing years when Saul chased him around Horish, how often he had felt desperate. Daily he had depended on God for survival. He had longed for escape and peace in those days. Now he viewed those days as among the best of his life. And then came the tumultuous, heady years of uniting Judah and Israel under his kingship and subduing their enemies. And it had all climaxed with God's almost unbelievable promise to establish David's throne forever. Had a man ever been so blessed by God? Every promise to him had been kept. Every, Dave, everything David touched had flourished. Never had Israel as a nation been so spiritually alive, so politically stable, so wealthy, so militarily powerful. And at the peak of this unprecedented prosperity, David had committed such a heinous sin. Why? How could he have resisted so many temptations in dangerous, difficult days and then yield at the height of success? Almost as soon as the question formed in his mind, he knew the answer, pride. Monstrous, self-obsessed pride. Honored by his God, a hero to his people, a terror to his enemies, surrounded by fawning assistance and overflowing affluence, the poisonous weed of self-worship had grown insidiously in David's heart. 
The lowly shepherd that God had plucked by sheer grace from Bethlehem's hills to serve as king had been eclipsed in his own mind by David the Great, the savior of Israel, a man whose exalted status entitled him to special privileges. David cupped his face in his hands in his shame as his shame washed over him again. Bathsheba's body had been nothing more than a special privilege he had decided to bestow on himself. And in so doing, he had placed himself above God, above his office, above his nation. Uriah's honor and his life. Bathsheba's welfare, everything. David had sacrificed everything to the idol of himself. And David fell on his face and wept again. And he poured out his broken and contrite heart to God. The encounter that we read about there earlier is short-lived. One evening of pleasure. But it cost so much more. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, as we're thinking this morning about a couple things Number one, the deceptiveness of sin. It doesn't feel like sin when we're in the middle of it, when we're engaged in it. It may even feel fulfilling. It may even feel satisfying at the moment. Eugene Peterson said David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. And what can be better than that? David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Uriah. He felt like a king. And what can be better than that? But through all this time, his heart dies a little bit more each day. And that is what I'm referring to this morning as the anatomy of sin. The often gradual decay of our hearts. One, it's just, it's just, it, it's just one look one time, one drink, one trip, one conversation, and we have this, we play this thing where we just kind of go through the gymnastics. But each time, as we give it more and more space, our hearts start to decay a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. The other part of the deception is that David is in charge or so he thinks. Did you notice as I was reading there, the verb sent is used 11 times in this story. David is usually the one who sends. In verse 1, he sends Joab to lead the army. In verse 3, David sends a servant to find out more about Bathsheba. In verse 4, David sent messengers to get her and bring her to him. In verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. In verse 8, David sent Uriah to his house to be with Bathsheba, and he sent a gift down to the house as well. Send, 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 send. All along the way, David tries to control and manage the situation. And it's often what we try to do with our sin. Control it and manage it. Whether it's lies, whether it's an addiction, whether it's greed, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's pride. Dallas Willard, he called it the gospel of sin management. Let's just manage things carefully. Skip Heitzig says, David thinks he has dodged a bullet. Uriah is dead now. All 
is going to be well. And so in terms of seasons, it's springtime in David's city. It's summer in his thoughts, burning, hot. It's fall time in his character. And it's winter time in his soul. And in the end, the verdict is pronounced. Verse 27. Let's keep reading down through there. I'm not going to read the, 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 the you know, the, the, Joab comes back, sends an account back about, you know, how he died and they got too close to the wall. Uriah's dead. And the messenger came back to David and said everything Joab said to him. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us. We came out against us. We drove them back to the entrance. Then the archers shot arrows, your servants, from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And notice David's response. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. You win some, you lose some. That's David's tone. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. And say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She did not know how this happened. We're never told that she was in on the plot. She wasn't. David plotted. Now she, her husband is gone. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the, look at the end. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God saw. David tried to do it in secret. David tried to cover it up. David tried to make it go away. But God saw it all. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all of them. He doesn't miss a thing. David thinks he is oh so clever, but he's not. He's not. And what happens? This is where the illusion breaks down because David's been sending and sending and sending and sending. And then chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sends and this will be the final send. God's sending Nathan to confront David about his sin, and this is going to cost. And there will be consequences. And God is going to take care of it, and we'll talk more about that. But the, the second thing here, is as, we, as we wrap up this morning, is the consequences of sin. The deceptiveness, of, but there's, there's consequences, and, and you know this. This is not new to you. This is probably by way of reminder. The reality is that David's sin impacted way more people than he ever imagined. His pride, his lust, his selfishness had a lot of ripples. Uriah loses his life. Bathsheba loses her husband. And eventually she will lose this child and part of her honor. Joab. Have you thought about Joab? Here's this commanding general who is in charge of the troops, and Uriah is one of his best fighters, and he is instructed to, to set him up for death, to be killed. Joab, his integrity. And not just Uriah, but other soldiers also were caught up in this advance on the walls and lost their lives as the archers shot down. Other families are mourning. David's family. The son dies, and as we'll read more next week in chapter 12, the household is now in disarray. Absalom is going to revolt. 
He's going to lay with David's wives on the king's own roof in time to come. The nation itself suffers a lot because of David's sin and weakness. Here's the thing. Sin never stays in the neat little boxes we try to create. We think we can contain it and control it and manage it, and there's a little box and it'll just fit in there. My sin, your sin, will have ramifications that we cannot predict or control. There will be spillover. There's always spillover. From here on out, David's reign and his life will be marked by trouble. It will be hard. He will stay on the throne another 20 years, but it's going to be a battle the whole way. The first 20 were amazing. The first 20 were triumph, triumph, victory, victory, victory. But after this, there's going to be hardship and pain and suffering and difficulty the whole way through. It is a cautionary tale. <laughs> Next week, we're going to come back to chapter 12 and see how God responds and how David responds. In the meantime, we are left with a clear picture of the destructive nature of sin. Many lessons about guarding our hearts and paying attention to the drift in our lives. And oh, how much we need the Holy Spirit. Oh, how much we need God's prompting and God's whispers into our lives, our ears, our hearts about helping us see and see and see what we need to stay focused. God, help us. And so, yeah, I, I, mean, I was thinking about this all week long. Wow, this is a tough one for Mother's Day. Wow. I mean, this, this actually, this series started to come together in the winter as I was reading through this. And so it just as, it, as we moved spot by spot by spot, it came to this today. God knows. I don't know. God knows. Last week was Abigail, great, intelligent, wise woman. Great Mother's Day message. But here we are today with the truth about how sin can destroy us. Thank you for listening to this latest sermon. For more Prof. Church, check out our YouTube at Prof. Church Lancaster. Follow us on Facebook at Prof. Church Life, on Instagram at Prof. Church, or visit our website, profchurch.net. Thank you for listening, and be sure to make it a great day.